You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. On this uh, Friday morning of chapel, our chapel frame is a renewed mind that uh, we are being shaped by Scripture toward what is good and right and true. Uh, Dr. Esther Jodhav, Reverend Dr. Esther Jodhav, uh, has been at Asbury for more than 20 years. And uh, for the last four years, uh, she has served as Associate Vice President of Intercultural Affairs and Spiritual Development. And uh, I'm grateful for her in that role, but when she took that role, she also left uh, our little place of having offices next to each other in the former Fletcher early, and I miss those times, Esther. In her role, she devotes herself to elevating cultural responsibility as an Asbury distinctive. Uh, she has served on the, in the front line of leadership for Asbury to be a Christian community that practices hospitality, mutuality, redemptive social action, and grace-filled reconciliation. Uh, members of the courageous class. You remember uh, Dr. Jodhav in those days when she was part of the student life team. And uh, now she uh, serves our campus uh, in many larger ways. Esther, it's been a gift uh, to know you and your family for more than 15 years. Asbury is grateful uh, that your family and India has shared you with us for this long. So welcome Esther back to the stage in chapel. It's for not saying. Just as we were done praying for chapel, the Reverend says to me that he was gonna share with you all about the grief I gave him when we were in student development together. Our offices were beside each other and there was a constant um, banter. I was looking for the right word. Um, a friendly banter, not only because he's from Texas and I'm from India, uh, but also because we are two ordained elders of the United Methodist Church from two different uh, conferences, but yet uh, alums of Asbury Theological Seminary. So thank you, uh, Pastor Greg, for that introduction. I want to share with us this morning about grace, a word that is used so frequently that it perhaps has lost its meaning. It has just become a word that possesses no strength of any kind, let alone something divine. The world is asking, you are asking, I am asking what kind of grace is this that forgives the most unforgivable? We think that we are unworthy of this grace, Perhaps you have said, how could God forgive me? This is absolutely not possible. This sin is not erasable. 
The reality is that our redemption from the scars of our lives come from Jesus Christ alone. This was something that I learned. I had never thought about the word scars as much as I did in the last five years. That we all carry scars of different kinds inflicted for different reasons. Perhaps by ourselves, on ourselves, or from someone else to us. So the reality, folks, is that our redemption from the scars of our lives come from Jesus Christ alone. My brother, who is a scientist and a faculty member at another university in the United States, said to me, trust God, even science cannot address the question of scars that create an emotional weight for us. So it's not just the physical aspect of being inflicted with the scar, but it is also the emotional aspect, the social aspect. What you and I believe of the faith we possess or don't possess, because we know that our world is made up of persons who possess a faith, and persons who don't claim to possess a faith. We practice, what we practice communicates to ourselves and to others around us our values. So this faith that we possess or don't possess, we practice it and that communicates our values, not only as a confirmation for us, but also as an indication of what we prioritize in our lives. What we believe of the faith we possess or don't possess, we practice. What we practice communicates to ourselves and to others around us our values. And our values inform and shape us for the better or for the worse. These words from Benjamin Espinoza that I came across during my doctoral journey from his article, Evangelicalism, Practice and Witness, a Response to Unholy Dissonance. Espinoza says, evangelicalism, evangelical education, Christian evangelical education, has been a field that has revolved around teaching of biblical and theological concepts in a developmentally and culturally appropriate manner. However, by reducing the core of the Christian faith to a few key concepts, we have taught ourselves that simply knowing the correct doctrines is adequate for living the Christian life and that practicing our faith is simply optional. Hear that. This is Espinoza saying this almost 10 years ago, that distilling our Christian faith to a few key concepts, we have taught ourselves, knowing the correct doctrines is adequate for living the Christian life, and that practicing our faith is simply optional. But we are in a time in our culture and in our world where we are discovering that that is less than optimal. 
because your generation more than any others has been bringing this into question. Is it enough to just have a few key Christian doctrines to believe in and not align those with the practices of our faith? This is an unfortunate dichotomy, says Espinoza, because as we know that orthodoxy, which is right thinking, does not necessarily lead to orthopraxy, which is right practice. I love this. Right thinking doesn't always lead to right living. It should confound us because we try to find a formula to help us live our lives. We're always looking for a formula to fix something. Do you see the abundance of that in our literature? 10 steps, five steps, 20 steps. We don't have to look too far. It's not a critique. It's pointing to that which we are seeing as a product of what we believe in. We believe that these steps are going to help us to fix, to eliminate the scars, the pain, whatever it is that causes us to function in a malperformed way to borrow from theologian Miroslav Wolf. So right thinking does not lead to right practice. We may possess the right thinking. Do we possess the right practice? Please take this question with you. Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 19 begins with the story of Saul the famous character of the New Testament, one of the most pivotal Christian disciples that has ever lived and walked this planet. Everyone was afraid is what we are told at the very beginning of Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. They were afraid of Saul because he was most intimidating to those who followed Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that Saul was breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He even went to the extent of going to the high priest and getting letters to the synagogues in Damascus, granting him permission to take as prisoners to Jerusalem anyone, men or women, so he could end their ability to follow Jesus Christ the Messiah. He wanted permission to take captive these people that followed Jesus Christ, which oftentimes, if not always, is nurtured in Christian community. That which we get to do in this space and in others where we find faith communities. However, on this journey to Damascus, something extraordinary and impossible takes place. A bright, massive, bright light has flashed around Saul, and he falls to the ground. Now, scholars have debated, for those of us that may be familiar with the story, if Saul was on a horse or he was on a donkey. But apparently, that wasn't important. The creature that was being used to transport Saul was not of significance in the moment. What was of significance is what was happening to Saul. 
This man fell off from this creature that was transporting him to Damascus. Not only is there a bright light, and not only is it that Saul just suddenly falls down from this creature, but there is a voice that speaks to Saul, and it says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, for those of us who are students of theology, you know that when a name is repeated twice or three times, there is a significance to it. It is causing us to pay attention. So here the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am the Jesus who, are, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. If you know the story of Saul, you know that this is not his character. He is never in the position of being told what to do. He is in charge. (laughs) He knows the right things to do. We will find out a little bit more about that later. So this voice is telling Saul, get up and go to the city and you will be told what you must do. Everyone that was with Saul, all his companions that were traveling with him were blown away. What was happening to our Saul? They were confused because they couldn't see the light that Saul saw. Neither they could hear the voice that Saul was hearing, but they could see that this person had just fallen off this animal onto the ground. This Saul, who was breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, could not deny his own encounter with the living God. A man who was never defeated and silenced, A man who was so popular for proclaiming murderous threats against God's people was now captivated by his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. He had no option but to be possessed by this experience that had occurred to him and to him alone. Are there experiences that you have had that you don't find very much company for? Encounters perhaps with Jesus at a micro level, at a macro level, perhaps faith encounters if we don't know if it's Jesus for sure. Have you had your encounters and because you don't have any community, you are unable to live in the power of that encounter? Be not afraid. (laughs) We're not alone. Because here is Saul who has had this amazing, extravagant encounter. And he cannot deny it because it has taken a hold of him. Dr. Brown said on Monday, he talked about being serious Christians. Saul was serious about his faith. How else would Saul have known to ask, is it you, Lord? When you ask a question, oftentimes 
There is a framework that supports the formation of your question. You've been wrestling with something or you're aware of something that causes you to communicate a particular question, right? So how else would Saul know to say, who is it? Is it you, Lord? By this expression, we could probably estimate that he had never encountered Jesus the Christ directly until God's grace evidenced itself upon him. Why else would Saul encounter Jesus the Christ? You see, Saul was prolific and devoted to the Torah. He was devoted to the doctrines of the faith and possessed a severe commitment to maintaining the right orthodoxy. He was probably far more fervent than any one of us put together. John 3.16 reminds us, while a very basic biblical reference that's central to the fact of transformation that Saul has experienced, that you and I have the invitation to evidence this grace that Saul had evidenced in his life. If you think of yourselves as being unworthy, as someone who does not merit, you may be fine and right in thinking that because of how we live our lives. It's not always in a perfect yes all the way to right living. It's an up and down journey. And it's quite okay as long as we find ourselves saying yes to the one who made us. You've heard of those words, my flesh is weak, but my spirit is willing. It comes from Paul himself. So John 3.16 is central to the fact that we all have the invitation to evidence this grace unless someone in here thought that they were not. Because the invitation comes from Jesus Christ. When Jesus becomes central to our faith, we start to recognize and understand the kingdom of God. It's not the things of Jesus. Anyone tracking with me? It's not just the things of Jesus. Like reading the scriptures, it's a good thing. Going to church, it's a good thing. It's not just the things of Jesus. It is Jesus himself. When Jesus becomes the center of our faith, we start to recognize and understand the kingdom of God. Not only do we grapple with our faith values as we know them or as we have inherited them, because we always possess, we are always in the process of learning from someone or from somewhere. So pay attention to who is teaching you. I think Reverend Hasselhoff talked about being shaped. Who is shaping you? Who is teaching you? Who is informing you? And is that the best source that you can find? Or is there another that you might want to consider? 
So when we come to this understanding that Christ is central, we grapple with our faith values as we know them, but we see that there is more. We see the possibility of transformation and conversion to the way of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't leave the Holy Spirit out of this Trinitarian equation. It is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There is a reason for that. Once we discover that Christ, and not just the things of Christ, are central to our faith, we can no longer be comfortable with our cultural understandings that have delivered this faith to us, but we begin the process onto a journey dictated by faith. I wanted to use the word dictated because to walk by faith and not by sight is not for the faint of heart. And I confess that because I don't know how to walk by faith and not by sight. I want concrete. I want to see things. I want to know things. And the invitation is to live in this mystery of walking by faith. May the Lord have mercy because we're all on this journey of learning to live by faith. And the reason this is significant is because we live by a trust clause that is stated in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. For those that come to God must believe that he is. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. So when we come to the awareness that Jesus Christ is central, a mild faith is no longer enough. It's not okay to only know about the things of Jesus Christ. You want to, you need to know Jesus himself. Saul encounters does not end there. He is blinded and now he has to be led. This man who is in power, has now become weak and is needing to be assisted by his colleagues to be led. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink. Saul's encounter was of a severe and serious nature. Now on the other side of this narrative in that same chapter of Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, we have Ananias, who the Lord speaks with and asks to go to Saul. Ananias is mortified. He is afraid because he knows what would become of him. He even tries to tell the Lord of the universe, do you know who Saul is? He kills people. And you're asking me to go to him? Is that hitting anybody? Where we have felt and thought, you sure you want me to go to that person? They just caused my scar. I hope we find ourselves in Ananias' response to a certain measure, right? So Ananias is arguing with the Lord and tells him, do you know who Saul is? But the Lord persists and gives Ananias directions to find where Saul is. 
Ananias is not convinced. He is so afraid. He wants the Lord to send someone else. Ananias, his fear held him back. But the Lord persisted with him and gave him the grace to go by assuring him that Saul was called for a purpose beyond anyone's imagination and expectation, accompanied with great suffering. Perhaps the assurance eased some of Ananias' fear, and he went. Are you afraid to go and reach someone that God may be prompting you to reach? What kind of grace is this? You put in your response to that question, we have demystified this godly grace. We have not understood its divine nature and power. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, we find these words that grace is meant to help us live holy lives. Grace is the unmerited gift of divine favor in the salvific work of Jesus Christ in our lives. We forget that grace is not simply forgiveness. It's not just saying your sins are forgiven, your wrong is undone. It holds no power over you. Grace is more than forgiveness. It is divine favor. Let that settle in us, that what God wants to offer is divine favor. And this divine favor allows us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God and with neighbor, as said in Micah 6.8. With all people, especially with those who you might find as being against you. Saul, now Paul, says in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, shall we continue in sin then that grace may abound? That is a powerful question. And Paul's response to this very question is, by no means, absolutely not, he says emphatically. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We have been introduced to Christ. How then can we live like we don't know him? When we live to Christ, we make every effort to do so by his divine grace to live in faith with orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right thinking and right living. When we live to ourselves, we live in fear. We live like we don't know this Jesus that wants to give us this divine grace. Paul discovered the soul of his mission through his encounter with Jesus Christ, evidenced by this divine grace. What kind of grace is this? That it can work on someone who is breathing murderous threats, and at the same time, it works in someone who is captive to fear. God's grace, his divine favor. May we find ourselves as fervent in our acts of mercy as we do with our acts of piety. These words of John Wesley, acts of piety, acts of mercy, right? So acts of mercy, right living, right thinking. Love God, love neighbor, and self, as mentioned in Mark 12, verses 30 through 31. Acts of piety, which is right thinking, found in Isaiah 45, 5, frames it so well. 
There is no other God apart from him, says the Lord God himself. Our broken world and our struggling lives require this grace, Asbury community. And not just our community, but God's people. We ought to recognize that we require this divine grace because outside of it, all else is a temporary solution. Henry Lewis, and I conclude with this thought, author of Excellence Without a Soul states, the fundamental job of undergraduate education. I was surprised by this. Again, I encountered this while working on my uh, doctorate degree. Lewis says, the fundamental job of undergraduate education is to help us grow up, to learn who we are, to search for the larger purpose of our lives, and to leave our academic communities as better human beings. Is that happening for us? Is that happening for you? Are we becoming better human beings? What Lewis is actually appearing to believe is that the soul of our mission is critical to how we live our faith. So if our faith does not have the soul, it's only right doctrines and not right living, we have missed something. The choice is before us. The invitation has been offered. Will we choose this divine grace to live into the full meaning of our lives and the full purpose of our mission? So I know that we're going into a long weekend, which gives us a little bit of space. May we not forget that the long weekend is because of a man who lived into his mission. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., he gave his life for something that was bigger than him because it possessed him. It captured him. What is possessing you today? The choice is yours. So as the band comes up, let me pray for us as I conclude. Gracious and merciful God, forgive us when we don't always know how to live out our orthodoxy, what we believe. Lord, let alone just knowing how to live it out, the reality that we are fallen human beings adds to the challenge. But we thank you for reminding us of this grace, this divine favor that we don't do this work of living rightly without your help. Please dismantle any thinking in our minds that we may have built that allows us to think that we can do this on our own. Lord, please take those barriers down. We have lived long enough thinking we can do this on our own. Please rescue us from that false thinking. And help us to know that to do our lives in coordination with you is really your invitation. It is not a sign of weakness or being unable to do something. If anything, 
It is an invitation to do the greater things that you said we could do because Jesus Christ is with you. So give us that grace and bless us this day in all that we do. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.